Greetings and welcome to Dead for Filth. I'm your host, Michael Verratti, and this is the podcast for all things queer horror and beyond. On this week's episode, I'm delighted to welcome a guest whose recent output reminds us that sometimes the most frightening location of all is the workplace. An accomplished writer of comedy, he's written jokes for the great David Letterman and also worked on the production teams of several notable sitcoms, including a current gig on Man with a Plan starring Matt LeBlanc. His novel, Ari the Wasps, saw him stepping into the world of horror to rave reviews. Please welcome to the show, John Jack O'Brien. Wow, thank you for having me, Michael. Thank you for being here, Jack. I'm so excited to have you on finally. I'm so happy to be here. I've heard about this show for so long. I think I heard about it when when it first was starting to gestate. Yeah, uh, you know, I I suppose that we could probably reveal that uh, at at one point in time, we were roommates. We were roommates for quite a while. Yeah, so... We really got to know each other, didn't we? We did, and you were there when uh, Dead for Filth was but a seed planted in the dead. Exactly, exactly. And uh, it wasn't the only podcast idea we had in that apartment, because originally we were going to... You were going to produce a podcast that I was the host of where... Uh, I had long in-depth interviews with each of my exes, three girls and three boys. Yeah, I still think there's merit to that. Like <laughs> going back into the world of dating and maybe learning the, the dark, yeah, hard truth. And that's know. the real horror podcast. That is very, yeah. It would be horrifying for everyone involved. Absolutely. Well, why don't we kick things off the same way we start every show with the same first question I ask every guest. And it is simply this. Why Horror. Now, I'm going to qualify this one a little more specifically because I know that you're more new to the world of horror and uh, it was something that maybe you resisted for a while, but you created this this amazing genre book. So why horror? Why now? Thank you for that. Uh, horror was not the genre that I set out to be in at all. Um, that's very true, but I love horror. I've always loved horror movies and horror books to an extent. And I guess if the question is why horror, it's because um, as a creative person, whether it be a writer, film director, or whatever, you're always trying to evoke a reaction from the audience, mm-hmm. to manip- manipulate a reaction from the audience, uh, laugh, a scream. Uh, I guess tears and maybe maybe a cheer, right? Sure. For that and and a scream. I wouldn't say it's the easiest one because that makes it sound cheap, right? But it's one of the ones we first learn about when you're a toddler. You can run up to another toddler and yell "boo" and they'll scream. And I do that. That feels really good, and it feels really good to do that. In a creative, uh, creative form, not running up to someone and yelling boo at them, <laughs> right. but doing it in a more literary, intellectual way. And, uh, I, you know, getting a scream out of someone is, is, takes a, a, a very similar uh, set of creative muscles as to getting a laugh out of someone. And it's interesting you say that because usually when I have people who come from the world of comedy, one of the things I like to ask them, and you've already spoken to this a little bit, is do you believe there is a delicate balance between the garish and the hilarious? Yes, for sure. And a a lot of my book, R.E. the Wasps, is funny. Um, And sometimes uh, I would be surprised because I'd get feedback from people who would be like, Oh my God, this book is so, so scary. And I'd be like, 
well, you know, there's parts of it that are funny too. Right. And other people would say, oh my God, your book was hilarious. And I'd be like, did it scare you at all? Because it's also <laughs> kind of scary also. Uh, and then there were plenty of people who thought both. But um, I like as a creator, you were looking for that happy medium though. Yes. Yes. yes because really the, the humor in it is not... It's not not knock knock jokes. It's it's absurdism and surrealism is where that humor comes from. And that same the dark side to that absurdism and that surrealism is is definitely horror, um, especially the kind of weird, sad uh, body horror that is in the book. And it, and <laughs> to add a, th- a third uh, aspect to the book. A lot of the horror is sad in right. a way. It's it's. I try to combine melancholy and horror, uh, like a portmanteau uh, with the H in between, like melancholer. Uh, didn't catch on. Didn't a, catch on. A new genre. Uh, uh, slow, slowly taking hold. Maybe you, someone else but, can, can follow my lead. I don't know. Well, in, in the academia to come, <laughs> you, you, your uh, text will clearly be the proto. Yes. On the Wikipedia page of Melancohorror <laughs> or whatever. Oh, my God. My, um, my book will be on there. No, I think that there is something very interesting to be said about sort of that that delicate balance that exists between comedy and horror, because uh, my natural reaction when something horrifying happens is often to laugh. Is to laugh. Yeah, I I remember. uh, I can't remember the name of it, but it was the Cloverfield spinoff in space. Oh, uh, Iceland Cloverfield or something. <laughs> the Cloverfield Paradox. Yeah, yes, yeah. Cloverfield Paradox. Uh, much better title than Spaceland uh, Cloverfield. But we watched it together. Right. Yeah. Not a perfect horror movie by any means. No. Um, but we, you and me, we sat there and we were just just having a grand old time laughing. Well, because I think it was kind of patently absurd. Yeah. But I think that was sort of the delight of it. Yeah. And I, so tying that in with what you're talking about, both with your book and sort of the the, the draw of this, mm-hmm. that manipulation of audience, mm-hmm. uh, I think it always comes down to a reaction. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that there has to be a part of you that's very interested in that reaction. So w- walk me through a little bit your, your own history with the world of entertainment and, uh, you know, what were the things that initially engaged you into, uh, you know, this world and when did you realize that you wanted to curate that reaction yourself? I guess uh, I went to college for journalism. And thank God I came to my senses and decided not to be a journalist because um, newspapers are not a growing industry right, right now. Right. But if you wanted to write real horror stories today, you're we're, I, now, <laughs> we're now in a great, a great journalistic era it's for very that. very true. <laughs> yes. Horror and journalism are also a Venn diagram right now. Um, but I, uh, I actually ended up being in this play and it was a very silly comedy play. And when I was in the play, a bunch of people at college came to see it. And they realized that there was a new uh, straight acting young man who could be who could act Uh, a straight acting man who could also act. That's what I mean to say. Uh, So I was cast uh, in a 16 millimeter uh, film project for the 16 millimeter film class of Frankenstein. I was 
I was cast as Dr. Frankenstein. I'm so glad you brought this up because I wanted to ask about your Frankenstein origin yes. story. So. Now, I, did I end up showing you the DVD? I don't think I've ever seen it. Because I I've got the DVD from my... Uh, from either my mom who had it, you know, tucked away at home or, mm-hmm. or a friend who helped make it. And, uh, oh boy, it's, it's not, I mean, it's a student film and, uh, it was made in, uh, it, it, uh, it was made in conjunction with the, uh, sound design class. Uh, so it was all dubbed because, oh. uh, their job, their class was to, uh, do ADR. So there's something not quite right about the movie, but I play Dr. Frankenstein. It's in black and white. It was an original adaptation by the writing classes. All the classes come together. Sound writing. Oh, this is just like a cacophony of crazy. That's amazing. And the editor and the editing class put it together. Anyway, I was Dr. Frankenstein. And, uh, we, when we had the screening, uh, people laughed at the right parts. They gasped at the right parts. They seemed to really like me. Uh, I was a freshman in college, so I, I don't know how convincing of a Dr. Frankenstein I was. Sure. But, uh, oh, but he was, a he was a med student at, in this adaptation. And anyway, uh, I loved that. And after that, I didn't get into acting. I got into media production cause I wanted to do the film side of stuff. And then from the media production side, that's when I started making movies and plays in college. And then after that, after college, got into wanted to break into TV, got into David Letterman that way, got into writing jokes that way, moved to L.A. that way, ended up on sitcoms that way. And to bridge the gap from the sitcoms or David Letterman to the book, I was writing all these jokes for David Letterman. Right. And it was great. It was fantastic. It was very satisfying to write jokes for David Letterman. But the problem is with the joke is once the guy says it on TV, it disappears. People laugh. And it goes away. About four seconds, maybe five if you're lucky. Mm -hmm. And then it goes away forever. Uh, Like forever and ever. Because those shows don't get repeated. And now it's off the air. Uh, It's gone forever. And uh, so after the Letterman writing stuff was done, I I knew I wanted to write a book that didn't go away, that stuck around. That was I could say I did that, and it could be on the bookshelf or on the Kindle bookshelf <laughs> for ever. Right. Well, that's I think any time that we creatively put something into the world, it's sort of in a way is our progeny. Like it, hope, yes. the hope is that it will live past us in yes. some capacity. Uh, you, you did kind of a very rapid fire timeline there and there's a lot I, I want to dig into and I'm going to return to some of those points. One thing I do think is really special and very fitting about dead for filth uh, for dead for filth listeners rather is that it's, it's a rare circumstance that someone really cinematically has their beginning as Dr. Frankenstein, <laughs> uh, you know, I think there's and that's sort of cool, like because, you know, you said you went for journalism. It wasn't necessarily something you were thinking about. Of course, you loved movies, you loved yeah. comedy or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, until that moment, yeah. that's sort of like that's a true baptism into yeah. this world to play this iconic character. Yeah. Uh, and I, I just think there's something really cool about that. Now, you said that um, the film was ADR. Did you at least get to provide your own voice? Yes. Okay, I ADR'd good. myself. Yes. Isn't it kind of an awful thing, ADR? It is a little bit, yeah. especially when you're doing with students in a school. Um, 
I will say about that movie, there's just one quick story. Two quick stories. One is that my entrance, they put on smoke machines and I came out of a dark alley wearing a lab coat. And that for me, like if I could make a GIF out of that, I would play it all the time. <laughs> uh, the second story is they had to, um, man, I had some real problems when I was a freshman in college. All, the, all this sort of stuff was going on to me. And uh, we had to make the... Uh, it's a live moment where the juice goes into the body, the electrical juice, I should say, goes right. into On the this body. Show you do have to clarify. And yeah. the body sits up, and I say it's those a, two magic words. Yeah. Um, really, I say the two magic words two times. And uh, I was just having an awful day, and we were shooting in this little science lab that was on campus. And it, I knew it was my big time and, and I was uh, breaking up with a girl and I knew I was gay and all this stuff was happening. And I was just completely having a panic attack. Right. And the teacher that was in charge of production had to take me aside and get me cold water and help me with my breathing. But I will say that it came across a little bit in a positive way in the performance where Dr. Frankenstein, he's nervous. He's he's really nervous. He's staked a lot on this right now. He's got a dead body. Other Dr. Frankenstein's, I don't know how anxious they are. Uh, well, you put they, you put it into the art. Yeah, I really did. I channeled <laughs> it. I channeled my own feelings and and uh, really made Dr. Frankenstein nervous. What a perfect confluence of events uh, in terms of just, you know, a Frankenstein origin story. And of course, I know what you know what this show's about. So you probably mm -hmm. see what questions on its way. And because of Frankenstein, cinematically, Frankenstein, uh, especially if we go back to the Universal Monster movies, uh, the original uh, Universal Frankenstein was directed by James Whale, who put a lot of homoerotic themes in it. Uh -huh. uh, and you said you were going through this thing where you broke up with a girl. And, uh -huh. and by your own quote, I knew I was gay. Uh -huh. uh, as you know, Dead for Filth, we like to talk about the intersection of our creativity sure. with our queer identity sure. and whether it be comedy or horror, how much of your relationship to the things you create, do you feel like come from that part of you? Yeah. Um, you know, the comedy side and the gay side, it, it, there's a, we're on dead for filth, but really the, the gay side and the comedy side intersect with, filth in a different way which is gross jokes gay sex jokes jokes about what all gay men have to do that most people don't talk about right which is why i don't want my parents following me on twitter we have our whole subculture of stuff to do with our uh euro genital anal regions that's um, you know, I'm trying to be polite on this podcast. Yes. Um, you know, that other straight people don't ever think about and gay people don't always talk about. And my com, I would say the comedy side of me tends to gravitate towards, uh, the sort of inherent, um, grossness of being gay and accepting that as not gross, <laughs> right. as just another thing that we should talk about and be open about and make jokes about. 
Well, you know, the filth side of the of the show, uh, I think definitely falls right in line with that. I don't think yeah. that there's anything like fall there. There's no diverging point just because like we so frequently delve into the world of horror, uh, you know, cinematically filth. Uh, we think of people like John Waters or yeah, people yeah. who like or Bruce LaBruce who yeah. kind of engage with this sort of sexuality that we otherwise culturally just yeah. don't want to engage with. Yeah. And one thing that I do think is interesting about the comedy that you curate for yourself, since you mentioned Twitter, uh, one of the things I didn't get to talk about at the top of the show is you sort of have a very prolific Twitter feed oh, thank you. where you um, really like to engage in the kind of humor that, as you said, even some members of our own community are like, oh my God, like, mm-hmm. uh, w- what was the conscious decision to like, you know, I'm just going to do this. I'm going to go for fucking broke. Uh, I don't know if it was a conscious decision. I, I think I have thoughts and I don't want to say those thoughts out loud. Right. Uh, but saying them to a bunch of strangers on the internet seems okay. Especially when I see those thoughts are not on the internet already. Right. Uh, and so it's almost a form of validation for me. I get something out of it because when I get, I mean, this sounds really cheap, but when I get likes or retweets or faves or however you want to say it or comments, right. Uh, that's saying, yeah, like, uh, we are not alone in that, uh, sensation. And that makes me feel good for me. And it also, I think helps people think that they're not alone too, if they're reading that. No, and you know what I think is interesting about it, and I'm sort of forming a thought that I'm about to spew out without completely, like, having... Spew away, Michael. (laughs) Without fully, like, you know, getting to the end of it first. But one of the conversations I have with a lot of people sort of about about queer identity and, you know, the gay lifestyle or the LGBTQ lifestyle is that while there's always been this fight for equality, I think the misnomer is, is that we want exactly the things that the heteronormative world wants. Uh-huh. Whereas like, we just want the, the opportunity for equality. Yeah. And then, then we, then we want to do our own thing and build on top of that. Right. And I think that where I think the functionality of the humor that you present online, dealing with these things that, exists very much in the gay world that gay men don't want to talk about. Uh, Do you think that one of the reasons it's sort of shocking is because it's true, but we still think in a a public space (laughs) or public forum, we have to present that heteronormative, right? Like pomp and circumstance for everyone else. Because when we're with a group of like gays at nacho night or something Uh and like, blah, 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 this, or like hookup culture that like Uh nobody bats an eye. But the second you say it online, is it like, oh no, the straights are going to find out. I think that's probably an aspect of me that's bubbling over online that is in real life, which is, and I found this by working with straight people, almost exclusively straight people at, at, at work, um, is that as a blessing and very much a curse, I uh, come across as straight for the most part. I I guess what I'm saying is if a straight person looks at me, they don't automatically assume Jack's gay. It's one of the reasons I got highlights in my hair because I want people to know (laughs) that I am gay. I don't want people to be like, oh, 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 do you have a girlfriend? I I don't want to keep coming out. I've been coming out my whole life. Right. I want people to know that I'm gay right away. So, I mean, I I guess I I know what you're saying. I I think that basically the the bottom line is you just are tired of people assuming that there's only one way to be gay. Right. 
And I don't think that's a problematic message. No. no. And what I guess how that bubbles into my Twitter account is that in real life, I have more confidence to say something very, very gay. Right. Because I can say it in a straight way. Uh, Do you ever have people from work who just like don't, you know, engage with you in that way ever find your Twitter? Has that ever happened? Oh, God, I hope no one from work ever finds my Twitter (laughs) ever. Uh, It is uh, at O'Brien John Jack. If you want to find it, if any coworkers are listening to it, they can find it. I actually, when I was just home, I, uh, I, I found a family friend who's I, my, my friend's parents from long, long ago who were, uh, and they were like, we follow you on Twitter. And I like had a spit take. I was like, like, no, <laughs> what, you know, you know what I say on Twitter? What? Honestly, after that shock comes down, it's like, yeah, I'm a human being. Right. I want to have sex. I poop. These these are things everybody does, and it's some. And it's okay to talk about. Oh, absolutely. Um, bless. Uh, I uh, so I want to cycle back around. Um, to a, a little bit of the Letterman discussion, because anytime a major icon is mentioned on the show and there's like a, you know, a intersection with them, mm-hmm. listeners are always interested. And you went from college to uh, working at uh, NBC doing Olympics coverage initially. Is that that was one? my internship? OK. During college, I worked for the uh, NBC Olympics. So how did that lead into a gig on the Letterman show? It didn't whatsoever. Really? Uh, yeah. Uh, actually, a friend of mine in college, her sister uh, was a writer's assistant at David Letterman. And sh- uh, she had started as a page and moved her way up to writer's assistant. And she said, uh, uh, her sister said, my sister works at David Letterman if you want to work there. And I said, sure. And so I applied and I got in as a page uh, working primarily in the Ed Sullivan Theater, ripping tickets, pointing. Uh, that's that theater at the time. I don't know now with Colbert, but at the time it held uh, 500 people, right. which is huge for a television audience. I think Conan was like 180 at the time uh, because it was an old Broadway theater. It held more people. And uh, getting the 500 people in off the street and into the seats, clapping, laughing, cheering. So right out of college, one of my jobs was to get up in front of the audience and clap and dance in my uh, sweater and tie and name tag and go up to people who weren't clapping and say, it would be great if you could clap and uh, (laughs) get the audience, you know, ready to get, you know, you have to prime them up. Right. Um, And so that's how I started. And if you remember, this is going to date me now. Everybody can figure out how decrepitly old I am, but well, I'm older than you. So we're all good. There was the writer strike in 2007, which put me out of work for a little bit. Then I came back after the writer strike, quit my job at MTV. The less said about that, the better. And, um, showed back up for, to page again at Letterman and then eventually got promoted to audience coordinator where I spent the next, uh, five years as audience coordinator, which is a little bit above the page program because you're not ripping the tickets but you're booking the audience and making sure that 
we actually have those 500 people show up. Right. Uh, and it was while I was working as audience coordinator that I went up to one of the writers in his office one day and I said, uh, I, you know, I'd be really interested in writing jokes on a freelance basis. And he said no. And I asked him once a month for the next 18 months. And then uh, he said yes. <laughs> so you literally got that gig out of persistence. Yeah. I fucking love that. I, I did not know that. Now, were you a fan of Letterman before you got that job? Yes, yes I was. And then, so tell me what that's like uh, being a fan of a show all of a sudden. I mean, obviously working as a page in, in, in this capacity of like getting the audience all riled up. Mm-hmm. But now you have written a joke or jokes, mm-hmm. including a, a one that did very well about uh, Chris Christie. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> Thank you. Yes. That um, are being said by someone who you are a fan of. Like, what's that feeling like? Uh, I think one of the highlights of my life that I'll probably remember forever is the first time I was in the Ed Sullivan Theater. So it's not my first joke. My first joke I watched in my office. Some of the times I was in my office, some of the times I was on the floor for the taping. Uh, My first joke ever I watched on TV on the office and fell out of my chair. And I literally was on the ground and my coworkers were all cheering for me. And this, but the, the, one of the highlights of my life would have been, uh, being in the Ed Sullivan theater with the lights down and the spotlight on Dave. And he says a joke that I wrote and you don't know when you're a freelancer, what he's going to say until he says it. So I had to watch the monologue very closely every, every night or every afternoon, really when we were taping it. And if he veered towards the subject that I wrote jokes about, like my, I I was glued. I was, I just wanted him to go in in the direction of one of my one-liners. So his monologues were kind of like choose your own adventures. You didn't know if he was ever going to hit every topic. I didn't, didn't, yeah, I didn't know if he would ever say anything that I wrote. And sometimes if I didn't get one on, but I got the, in the, in the right topic, I'd be like, Hey, I, I got the topic. I didn't get the joke. But I got, got the, the topic, topic right because yeah. it's a it's a two step process. First, you got to know what he's talking about. And then the second one is you got to get a good joke about it. Um, so being in the in this studio audience with the the audience there and the man himself right there and and hearing it. And I, I'll never I'll never forget that in my entire life. That feeling was incredible. It was a tantamount to walking on the moon. That's amazing. Now, because you worked on a show that was inarguably one of the most significant late night talk shows Mm -hmm. in modern pop culture history, do you have strong opinions about the landscape of late night television now? I do. I definitely do. I think uh, there's a lot of great stuff happening now. I love I love that Samantha Bee is doing what she's doing. I love that she's out there. We need more women we need uh more diversity we you know stephen colbert is doing great right he's really he is taking uh the, he's filling the void of the old john stewart daily show right trevor noah is doing fine but he's not john stewart stephen colbert is combining the news and the jokes in a way that's that only john stewart used to be able to do Now, the reason I asked to go into a little more detail about Letterman, uh, in addition to, you know, just the fact that he's such a fascinating pop culture figure, is that uh, 
I, I do think that over the course of Dead for Filth, one of the things that we do when we have creators on is try and highlight important moments of their own history. And you had mentioned earlier that one of the things that was like, it's both in, in a, a very amazing, elating moment to have a joke on the show, but then it's gone. And that inspired you to write the book. Yeah. So I, I wanted to like get that, that history of, of Letterman and how that like magical moment kind of propelled you forward into this, you know, next yeah. phase. But now tell me a little bit about Ari the Wasps, because it, it was a little bit of a, a pause in between that moment and when you started writing the book. And uh, if you could tell our listeners a little bit about the book, you know, without giving it away. So hopefully they go buy it. Uh, and, and why that topic? Uh, the book has a very clear origin story, actually. I only started writing it. I actually moved to L.A. Um, and was still writing jokes for David Letterman while I was in L.A. Mm-hmm. Uh, even when I was in New York, it was always in the office. It was always over email. So I didn't have to miss a step by moving to L.A. I still just emailed in my jokes every day. Right. Um, so while I was in L.A., I had to... Uh, sort of restart my career a little bit. I started. I started as a PA, and uh, I had a year of the PA on this uh, great TV show called The McCarthys, uh, which was canceled. Uh, which was about a gay man and his family, and then I uh, got hired uh, to to be the writer's PA on another show, which will remain nameless for now and you'll see why in a moment um right before i started that job i had a break and so me and my friend lorne we went camping in sequoia national forest and uh this is all leading up to the book so stick with me i'll try to go fast you Uh, tell the story in your time sequoia (laughs) national forest uh or sequoia national park i think beautiful absolutely gorgeous we spent four days there Ah, deer at our campground in the morning. We saw uh, just the most unbelievable views. We were up in the mountains. The air was uh, difficult to breathe. It was like we were in a different world. I would highly suggest anyone who lives in California to go check out Sequoia in the mountains. I felt one with nature. I felt a new peace within myself. And then I came back that Sunday got ready and started my job on Monday. Now my job was uh, pre was to set up the office for the, before the writers came in. So it was early, early, early pre-production. We had uh, the studio, the production had rented this office space. They didn't know what the status was of the office space. Uh, the show had just left. I think it was parenthood had just left. So place was a mess. Parenthood left the place a mess. Sorry, parenthood guys, but you guys were slobs. <laughs> um, uh, and, uh, we, I had to just make sure everybody had a desk and computer and a lamp and a chair and that everything was clean and the kitchen was clean and everything like that. Now I was the only person in this office building starting on that Monday. And you were I, by yourself. I was by myself. Okay. I think the producer met me at like 9am and like gave me the keys and then she left. That's and like the start of a horror me. movie anyway. This is, this is yeah. where it started. Yeah. yeah. This is where R.E. the Wasp started to take form. Uh, and uh, I was in this dark 
I had the entire building to myself, the entire floor to myself. There were people on the first floor. I was on the second floor. That's it to the whole building. No one's mm-hmm. above me. And it was dark. It was musty. It was old. There were there were things that didn't seem to belong just sitting out. Pipes, just like lengths of pipe sitting around. And uh, I had to unlock all these offices, see these weird things that people didn't bother throwing out or leaving behind. I had to wash dishes. I mean, I was I was a PA. I was starting from the bottom. And uh, this was on the NBC Universal lot. um, And the office building was right next door to King Kong, the ride. So about every three minutes or so, uh, the building would shake. Uh, vibrate um, with because we were close to uh, the giant King Kong ride, which was making so much noise that the that yeah, it's like Jurassic Park almost. If you had a cup of water, you would see it going on wow. the table. And this is all happening while you're essentially in the dark. Yeah, well, I mean, I could turn the lights on, but they were motion activated lights, um, which made its way into the book as being an evil thing. And my first week there, I think I think people did show up the second week, but I still was working a lot of menial, awful tasks. And uh, that's when I realized that this office building is an unnatural place and horror comes from unnatural places mm-hmm. usually a haunted house sure or an indian burial ground or something that man has tainted in a way a nuclear disaster site or it, a, a horror location has always been tainted usually by man right and i began to think of it was a combination of just being in that beautiful nature of Sequoia National Park, and then, bam, I'm in this horrible office building. Right. Just the absolute worst environment for a person's soul. And then turns out that the show I was working for was absolute crap. <laughs> One of the worst shows, NPR, this is not a savage organization, called it the worst show of the, of that year. Man, when NPR gives you a sick burn, it's pretty bad. Like, go off and think about what you've done. So I was like, I don't even know if I want to work in TV anymore. And that is when the stories that made up Ari the Wasps started to come to me. And I didn't think, oh, this will make a great book. But I started writing each individual story. Right. And then started finding a backbone to them. And they all take place in... As a shorthand, I call it a haunted office building. It is an office building where scary, bad, evil things happen. It is not haunted like by a ghost, but it is a place where horrible, unnatural things happen because it is an unnatural environment. Well, I suppose there's also commentary there to be had about just sort of kind of the horrors of corporate culture. Yes. Yes, and how a corporation is an unnatural entity of which we have to be a part of. Right. That has grown out of our society. I think uh, there is an argument to be made. One of my professors in college made an argument that uh, corporations are the dominant life form on the planet and we are their microbes. I would buy that. You know, what's interesting from a horror standpoint is that you have these... uh, there is something to be said about, you know, we're haunted by corporations, but we also can't live without them. Mm. So they both are 
they both can be haunting kind of things, but they're also like that body horror of mm-hmm. it all. Like you can't detach yourself no, you from, can't. from corporate entities in today's modern society. It's interesting that you bring up body horror because most of the horror in the book is body horror. And what I was really going for, I know I just went on a anti-capitalist tangent, <laughs> but what I was really going for is the horror in between you and the rest of the world. Right. That uh, an intimate kind of horror. One of the uh, chapters that I got the most responsive is when someone finds uh, something sort of a creature i guess you would say lodged in between his teeth oh and at yeah first he thinks it's food and it's not food and i had someone read that chapter and said this really ruined my day i hate that i read this and i was like thank you so much that's I, so kind of you to say i remember reading an early draft of that chapter when uh, we were roommates and yeah. i think that uh I just remember telling you, I'm like, that was delightful. But yeah. you also know that I'm very twisted. Yeah, no, I wanted, <laughs> yeah. I, I brought that to you because I, I wanted to, I wanted that chapter to be scary and I knew you knew scary and I, I didn't want it to be too lightweight. I wanted that to be a real punch to the gut. Now, body horror specifically is a subgenre of horror that kind of stands apart because it is one of those genres. I I think that when you really break it down, there always seems to be an out. If there's a serial killer or there's a ghost, like Mm. if you're in a haunted house, just leave. If you're Mm -hmm. in the woods with Jason, just get out. Mm -hmm. But when the horror is your own body, it's sort of inescapable. Yeah. And uh, I'm kind of, you know, wondering, is that, something that is particularly effective like it I, I guess this would be the part of the show is like what are the sort of things that like frighten you like what engages you but like it, it, for sure body horror for sure frightens me yeah uh I I have a love-hate relationship to it because I love it and also it detests me right. and, and sometimes I have to look away I think Black Swan is one of the best body horror movies ever made just the picking there, of the cuticles yes so, yeah. and also uh there are moments in District 9 in the first half of District 9 that are incredible body horror as well. Uh, but uh, body horror resonates with me, and now we'll, go, we'll get personal, if you don't mind. I because, don't. Uh, as, as you know, but your listeners don't know, when I was 15, I was diagnosed with Crohn's disease. And it wasn't as easy as it sounds. No. Uh, Crohn's disease, if you don't know, is an inflammation of the intestines, uh, which is incurable, but very livable. Uh, livable, you know, it's a lot of people have it and right. are OK. I'm OK. I'm in remission. But when I was 15, I was still seeing a, pedi- a pediatrician who had uh, apparently gotten his medical license uh, in, I don't know, uh, St. Croix or something like that, because he had no idea what he was doing. So I had uh, undiagnosed Crohn's disease for six months before anybody said, um, you have Crohn's disease. You should get that treated. Uh, so when I was about 15, I went through my own body horror right where i i uh, i was going through bathroom stuff that we don't go we won't have to get into here uh night sweats i went down to about 90 pounds i had wow. no appetite um and the my uh 
my idiot doctor was saying like, oh, you should try eating more fruit. To which my, me and my mom and dad were like, what? We go, but we didn't go see another doctor. We, right. we knew he was wrong, but we didn't go see another doctor. And it was just a, a nightmare. It was an absolute, it was an absolute nightmare. And I remember laying in bed being like, is this because God knows that I look at Brian Rosanko in the locker room and he's punishing me? Brian, if you're listening, hello, uh, feel free to Facebook message me. <laughs> Um, like I, it was truly frightening that, uh, something was happening to my body. Nobody knew what it was. Nobody could tell me what it was. And it was getting worse every day. There's gotta be just an utter hopelessness to that feeling. Oh yeah. And not to mention I was going through puberty and, and developing gay feelings. Oh my God. Like, so like it was a real confluence. And I was also a freshman in high school, no friends, Sick every day, going to the nurse every day. No wonder you found comedy. Fevers after school every day. I would go home, I would nap. My mom would make me a lettuce sandwich because that's all I could eat. Oh my God. It was uh, was an awful, awful time. And uh, I don't think I, I, after that... Uh, they pumped me full, so full of steroids that I had just had <laughs> life was great right after that because one of the side effects of steroids is euphoria. And I, what I didn't say now, I'm gonna write a great horror story about right. Crohn's disease. But a lot of the body horror in Ari the Wasps, I think, comes from uh, uh, comes from that experience because not only is it happening inside you, but your body is producing it. Right. And that's, again, it's a thing that, like, you can't escape yourself. No. So you're always going to live with it until you deal with it. And you can't stop yourself from producing it. Right. Yeah. (sighs) It's kind of gross. Are you feeling stressed out right now? Because it's a little stressful even to talk about. Well, I I just think that, you know, it definitely, like, I can see the genesis both of this book having read the book and and knowing that relationship to... to kind of that hopeless feeling when your body's not doing what you want it to or what you need it to. And then like, I also, as I just kind of like loudly proclaimed in the midst of your story, like no wonder you found comedy because when you're going through that, like all you probably want to do is fucking laugh. Like you needed something. Yes. (laughs) Yes. I I mean, my favorite (laughs) movies at the time were like dumb and dumber. (laughs) I, I used to watch the dumbest. I mean, I loved, uh, Night at the Roxbury. It's just like the dumbest Wayne's World. Stupid. I mean, not, they're not the dumbest. They're good, dumb comedies. But right. I loved those movies as a kid uh, because uh, they weren't. Uh, they, they almost made poop fun. Right. <laughs> Dumb and Dumber taught me to laugh about diarrhea again. Uh, put, put that on the box. Um, <laughs> what I, I do think, you know, is, is a lot of comedy is born out of tragedy. Uh, and, and I think that a lot of people are drawn to genre like horror in the same way. Uh, and it's been a thread throughout the show. We often talk about how a lot of people who felt like outsiders or had their own situation, like fell into horror because there's a catharsis like you can you maybe had fear in the world but if you could place fear on something you could get it out and they can see like comedy working in a similar mechanism in that way uh 
and obviously you just you you just told a very like harrowing tale of your own personal body horror that like led to the inspiration of this book but i kind of i love a good full circle moment so like outside of of the crohn's disease situation which is very real one of the things we talked about when we discussed your twitter feed was sort of like the realities of gay men uh-huh. that gay men don't always talk about. Yeah. And I'm going to ask you if you think like, you know, outside of your personal situation, do you think that gay men have a particular relationship with body horror that maybe the rest of the world does not? I would say yes. I would definitely say yes. Uh, because, uh, for, for both sides of the below the belt equation, I think when you're younger, uh, your penis wants something that your brain knows you cannot have. Right. When, I'm talking when you're really young and, and society has told you this is not good. And I guess that's different for today's kids. Right. And then later growing up and having your first sexual experiences, you have to cope with the indignities <laughs> and uh, difficulties of receiving anal sex. See, I knew that we were going to, like, have some real fucking chat today. <laughs> uh, but that's no, a, I mean, it is. It's interesting. Like Dr. Ruth, the indignities of anal sex. That's uh, that's the uh, the tie in novel of this yeah. episode. <laughs> um, no, but it's true. Like, I think that there is like a body horror to uh, to the gay experience that like. I mean, not is to say not not to say that there's it's horror, but like you know, I think that like we have different relationships with our bodies, mm. uh, and in 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 ways that other people don't, because you kind of have to make peace with parts of things that yes. like most people can just ignore. Yes. Yeah. Well, it's also taking aside the biology part of it that I just very frankly discussed. It is a desire within you, right? That you can't stop producing, right? Uh, and that's that's almost what happens in Ari the Wasp as well. There's there, there's something inside of you uh, that you can't get rid of, and that would be um, if you're a kid growing up in Alabama, you're just desired to hold hands with another guy. You can't right. get rid of that. Well, that is because there's that feeling like you really want to reach your hand out, but you can't like yeah uh, deep. Um, <laughs> So I do think that, uh, you know, the the trajectory of this novel, the idea that um, it, it began both with the genesis of like, you know, your own personal body horror combined with like the, the specter of corporate America mm. and the unnaturalness of an office. It mm-hmm. kind of culminated in like a very fascinating read and something I really enjoyed. And what I really uh, think is special about it in addition to all of these things is it it should be obvious that corporate office buildings are horrifying places, but like, I don't really see a lot of genre material set there. We still love like a good creepy old house, but like I still, and I think you probably know this about me. I would spend a weekend in a haunted house, but don't you fucking dare put me near a cubicle. Like I've no way. Cubicles are scary. They are. Yeah. I mean, it's a, the book is predicated around a really obvious metaphor that, uh, Ari the wasps. Yeah. We're we're just insects, mindless drones working towards uh, some collective gain of building a nest or something like that. What is a wasp really going to do with a nest? Not much. Think about that. It's a place for them to go to and work at. 
That's it. Oh, poetic. By the way, I get to tell you this for the first time on air because we haven't really had a chance to talk about this. But after you moved out, uh, like the next week, a wasp started building a nest, a nest above the door. Oh, my God. And I was just like, he left his place. <laughs> I mean, my brother has uh, texted me photos of wasps in his office, which uh, is, is, is especially right. Um, on now, I hope the actual insects, not just like white Anglo-Saxon people. It is the okay. actual insects. <laughs> and the and the idea for the insect game, really, I needed a, a I had all these short stories that the book is not quite a regular novel. It is shorter than a novel. Uh, some people would call that a novella. Right. Uh, which I am not against. Uh, I, I just like usually call it a book or novel. Yeah. I like novel because it's a complete experience. I don't like calling it a novella, but it yeah. is a series of interconnecting short stories um, and I realized I really needed a strong backbone to hold them all together, which is where I came up with the wasp story, which is that the office building gets overrun by wasps. Right. And that's where the title comes from, because they're all emailing each other about what to do about these wasps. So the subject line in the emails are the wasps. Um, but, uh, you know, I've, I've uh, I mentioned earlier in college, I, I had anxiety and I saw a therapist for anxiety and uh, he told me to think of a happy place and I thought of this beautiful calm bridge uh, by the beach in Old Saybrook, Connecticut where I used to go to in the summer as a teenager and and I and I thought of that as my happy place and one time I went back and I actually instead of vis visualizing the happy place as a bridge I went back and I sat there on the bridge it's a it's a footbridge um, so pedestrians only and I sat there and I just kind of looked around and there was a little just a little bug on the on the railing there and I I looked around at the ocean and the beach and I turned my head back to the bug and there was a wasp devouring it um, in the mindless quick uh, robotic way that only insects act just absolutely tearing this living thing that is squirming to get away apart and I'd never actually seen a wasp eat something before and the juices and viscous fluids involved in that and I was like this is my happy place I guess <laughs> and uh, about two or three years after that when I needed a bridge to the novel I didn't mean to say well, that. Look at that. Like like I, I had a bridge and uh, I didn't consciously put that together. But later I was like, I wonder if that had to do with that wasp that was in my happy place bridge right. uh, that I saw just tearing a perfectly innocent bug. Wasps apart. are terrifying, by the way. Like, you know, I think uh, there are different strains of wasps that like mm. they'll like lay brain their, their eggs inside of other yep. an animals and then they yep. like all like explode out of them. They're not honeybees. No. And then there's also the wasp that will like they they literally like paralyze it and eat like it eat it alive over the course of several weeks yes they're like sadistic little bugs they're evil yeah they're truly evil and, and a point i try to make in the book artfully or not is that bees make something and wasps do not bees make honey right bees have a social structure that wasps don't have i mean they they might have queens or something like that but bees have that social structure and wasps are just Every every jet fighter out for itself. They don't care. They can bite you. They can sting you. Well, it's interesting because, uh, you know, from an ecosystem standpoint, like uh -huh. our science teachers would always tell us that every living creature 
uh, does something that contributes to the ecosystem and the ones that don't are parasites. Yeah. And they're like uh, a wasp. I don't really know how it contributes to an ecosystem. Yeah, I don't know. But I still don't know how people do either. Oh. So. so maybe really people are wasps in a way. Mm-hmm. Hmm. We just blew the lid right open. If you like a metaphor like that, you might like Ari the Wasps, available <laughs> for download on Amazon.com. <laughs> Ari the Wasps. Brought to you by Dead for Filth. You know, yeah. I love when I love when people are able to do my job for me. Uh, I uh, so okay, this is good. So we talked about the book, the genesis, how it went, and you know, this is your first, you know, big foray into novel writing. Yeah. Uh, as you said, uh, you always had an interest in horror, but aired towards comedy in, mm-hmm. until this book. Yeah. So I I want to ask, what what horror movies did you like growing up? What were the ones that like you engaged with, if at all? Um, the first. My dad had a propensity at the time to tape movies off TV and for to have them on VHS rather than. So I saw Alien, Aliens, The Shining Mm -hmm. uh, and maybe Terminator or Terminator 2. Um, Definitely. Psycho, but well, Psycho probably wouldn't be that edited for TV. But all those movies that I just mentioned uh, were edited for TV, right? Um, but when you're eight, they're still pretty scary movies. Sure, yeah. Um, they don't, they just don't have quite the flashes of blood that uh, are in the rated R uh, versions. Um, so definitely the Alien franchise spoke to me when I was a kid because I was I was looking at it thinking like this just looks really cool like I've never seen a movie that looks like this now then when you eventually saw the uncut version were you like scandalized you know I don't remember the first time that I saw the uncut version and and I don't remember I must have been closer to 12 or 13 uh but I don't remember that moment. Well, ironically, I mean, that you like really one of your first draws into genre was Alien because it sort of is full circle with the whole body horror thing. Because yeah. one of the most seminal moments of yeah. body horror in cinema is, is the, the thing bursting out of John Hurt's chest. Yeah. And also uh, the the aliens in Aliens yeah. are more portrayed as insects. Right. Uh, with, a, with a hive and, and queen structure to them. Well, there's a whole thread through all the things today. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but uh, those were my favorite horror movies uh, growing up. And then and then as I became more of an adult, I I I uh, started really enjoying Nightmare on Elm Street and Jason or Friday the 13th rather. Um, and I would say also uh, what I really love about movies that are scary these are not scary movies. Let me see if I can. Um, I love it in movies when the movie is not a horror movie, but the movie contains an element of true horror within it. Sure. Uh, so you're watching a regular movie and then something real scary happens in it. And I think of 2001. Space Odyssey having that moment when the astronauts are walking towards the monolith they find on the moon. And there's this haunting chorus of uh, voices singing without words. Yes, very eerie. And they touch the monolith and the sun hits the monolith for the first time and it emits an incredible 
piercing noise and the astronauts were all screaming and trying to cover their ears in there. That to me is very scary. When I was a kid, uh, Christopher Lloyd and Who Framed Roger Rabbit? <gasps> Judge Doom. With car- cartoon knives pointing out of his eyes. When I killed your brother, I t- I'm not going to do it and see the microphone. It'll def- <laughs> deafen people at home. But even like the phone call and Lost Highway, Large Marge. In Pee-wee's and the, Big and, Adventure. And, yeah. and the Clown Doctor and Pee-wee's Big Adventure. Oh, yeah. uh, the baby in train spotting. Um... Movies, it's a, Stephen King said something about like in Lord of the Flies. <laughs> he didn't say this in Lord of the Flies. He said it in his introduction to Lord of the Flies that real horror sometimes can come out of a straightforward story. And I think he's referring to in Lord of the Flies when one of the characters finds the uh, pig head on a stick covered in flies and the pig head talks to him in a haunting, buzzing voice of the voice of the flies. And uh, that is a moment that is there's no other supernatural moment. And we can say maybe it's all in that character's head or whatever. But that is a moment to me that perfectly sums up that idea of a regular story that has a crystallized moment of horror in it that that can really resonate in you if you're not expecting it. Well, true, because it, you have one set of expectations and it just rocks your foundation of what you're getting. Yes. And I think that that's really powerful. The other thing that I think that people tend to forget, and it's good because we've been talking sort of about writing uh, today a, a lot, is that I, I think the, the way to properly execute horror in anything is to remember that when you're writing a story the characters in it don't know what genre of story they're in <laughs> yeah and the second you kind of like allow it to be like steve's a cheeky blah 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 <laughs> like horror movie aficionado yeah. i'm like steve didn't wake up that morning knowing whether he was gonna go to grandma's house or get an axe in the face yeah. because you never know every single morning we wake up to the potential that there could be horror waiting for us beyond the door yes. and maybe that like you know will give everyone pause Yes, but another another thing I wanted to incorporate into Ari the Wasp is that I I realize I realized and th- and this could be wrong. This is just my opinion that uh, horror almost never comes uh, from interpersonal relationships in movies and TV. No, it always comes from an other. Uh, sometimes a monster or a ghost or whatever. Um, the big twist to Psycho is that we think it's an other. It's a deranged mother. Right. And then it turns out to be the character we knew all along. Right. And that makes it even more scary. Right. But there are no uh, interpersonal relationships in Ari the Wasp. Everyone is on their own and they're all pressed up against the outer world and the horror comes from themselves bleeding into the outer world or the outer world bleeding into themselves, which was great for me because I'm just starting out as a writer. I don't know how to write interpersonal character relationships, right. writing two characters uh, that both want something and they're in the same scene and they're talking to each other. Uh, that, that shit's real hard. <laughs> um, it was, it's much easier to write about a, a, a some, a, about another Right. Uh, And their relationship to the other. And for me, the other not so much as bugs flying around the room, but some sort of um, feeling or environment, something pressing up against the character. Do you wonder if 
otherness is more prevalent than ever though now because we all sort of like with the digital world and social media mm. kind of isolate ourselves and fool ourselves into thinking that we do have interpersonal relationships. Uh, we think we have uh, interpersonal relationships. We have them on our devices. Um, and I think there's been a, I think it's called Unfriended, the Unfriended series or something. Oh, yeah. Blumhouse. A, well, Black Mirror does this really, really well. Right. There's going to be a breakthrough. I think within the next five years, there's going to be a breakthrough horror hit about our relationship to our devices like Videodrome. I think they might even be doing a Videodrome remake where our main character's hand is going to turn into a screen and right. we're going to get stuck into screens that our eyes are going to become screens. Right. If I was going to make a movie or a horror movie today, do you have five million dollars, by the way? Not not on hand. Okay, well, if I was going to make a $5 million horror movie today, it would be about that. Copyright, Jack O'Brien, 2018. Uh, do not steal my idea. Thank you. Well, I think just the engagement with technology, it's like there is such a... Black Mirror hits it so well is that we invite the horror in. We don't even yeah. realize, you know, we are so worried about all these other things when in fact we yeah. put everything out there. And it can manipulate us. Yes. The technology. And I would argue that there is not a one of us that hasn't already been manipulated in some way. Yeah, I, th I, I think we're we are in way too deep. Yeah, way too deep. And the, and our little kids uh, looking at their screens, not to be an old man shaking his cane. They're they're in too deep, too. Right. I don't want to be a therapist for those kids. No, they're going to be messed up. Well, it does. It comes back to uh, it comes back to sort of a, a culmination of all the things we've talked about today. The idea that you can't escape a corporation, uh -huh. and in a way, it's body horror because we've made these things such part of ourselves we can't detach from those either. Yeah. So they've permeated us, yes, and they've changed us. Oh, Jack, uh, what have you seen recently that you like? You know, I'm dying to see Hereditary, so I can't wait for it to come out on dvd so i can watch it on a tv during the daytime <laughs> um i uh i have recently read um i've recently read a great horror book called i'm thinking of ending things by ian reed okay and uh i th i thought it was fantastic uh horror things that i've seen so f a lot of recently I guess I um, went to the, I think, 30th anniversary of the screening at uh, the Chinese theater of A Nightmare on Elm Street 4 with director Rennie Harlan. That's the right, entire yeah. cast in attendance, as well as I think his name is Bob Shea, who is the CEO and founder of New Line Cinema. Yeah. Unbelievable, unbelievable to even be in his presence. The man who like greenlit Lord of the Rings and was like, we're going to we're going to do it the way Peter Jackson wants to do it, which th that's a whole other cinematic feat unto itself. But but he had a lot of love for Nightmare on Elm Street 4 because he said it really saved 
the uh, the studio, the studio yeah. in a big way. Well, New Line for years in the industry was referred to as the house that Freddie built. Yes. And uh, Nightmare 4 is actually my favorite of the sequels because ah. it's the first one I ever saw. Like there's, it, yeah. there's real, that, that movie succeeds on several real, there are some, there's symbolism, there's yeah. themes, there, there, it, it's, I mean, my favorite, I guess, would have to maybe be two because it's so gay and there's so many hot men in it. Right. But I might, I might uh, say that see, uh, season, season four, <laughs> season four of Nightmare on Elm Street. If only. Yeah. Um, yeah. Part four is really cool, though. It was definitely the first one that was like clearly influenced by the MTV generation. You can see that sort of. I remember uh, like seeing it as as a little kid slash young teen, and like when Joey's in the waterbed, and it's like kind of sexy, and yeah. it's like, oh my god. Uh, I didn't, uh, I didn't realize quite what was going on in that moment uh, yeah. for me until later. But uh, yeah, I like that one a lot. I like that Alice takes back the night at the end of the film, but no, that's a good, that's a good one to go see. Yeah. Uh, I love house of leaves and I love uh, HP Lovecraft as far as horror books. Those books really influenced Ari the wasps in a big way. I can definitely see Lovecraft. Yeah. 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 Have you ever read a house of leaves? I have. It's a very complicated novel. Uh, yeah. Novels even sort of like understating it. Yeah. It's uh, Mark Daniel Lusky. Yeah. Yeah. He. Uh, it, it's. It's a very. It's almost like found footage. The book. Yeah. Like there are all it's these incredible. different. Yeah. It's really. I've read it twice, and I. I think I loved it even more the second time. I mean, it's not. It's not that hard to figure out. It's not like trying to watch. Uh, Inland Empire for the second time and being right. like, what is this about? But like, it's just more enjoyable the second time around. And um, well, it's very dense. It's very much like yes. a postmodern piece of writing. Yes, and, and I, it, yeah. it, it it definitely inspired the short chapters and alternating viewpoints of Ari the Wasps, as well as I've, I when I was just like, fuck it, I'm going to put in a chapter in Spanish, uh, which infuriating <laughs> a lot of my readers. I was like, you don't find that cute and charming and they're like no but you can run it through google translate and uh <laughs> figure out what the spanish chapter means i think it just gives it mass market appeal uh <laughs> i uh what well that leads to the next question what are you working on next i hear you might be writing something new i am writing something new uh i've i've been in in contact with someone who's interested in reading my my next book, uh, I have been working on over a year just on the outline because these things take time. Sure. I went to a friend of mine's reading and asked him uh, how long did it take for him to read his book that he had published. I was in a bookstore he was doing a reading and he said nine years. <laughs> and I, uh, I, I went home and I took a lot of Lexapro after that because I was like, you really got to devote yourself self to the, these things when you're writing a book. Um, so I am very, I'm, I've been working very hard on it and I'm still in the very early stages of it. But so when I'm back on your podcast in, uh, 2024, all right, we'll be I'll writing a new book to pitch <laughs> or sell. Well, excellent. Well, in the meantime, uh, for people who want to find Ari the Wasps or want to find you, where do they do it? I know uh, you gave the Twitter handle you earlier. You can find but me on Twitter yeah. at uh, O'Brien John Jack. You can find the book on Amazon uh, 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 if you search for R.E. the Wasp, and that's the letter R, the letter E, the colon, and then the words the Wasps. And I will say that uh, it is available only on Kindle. 
But uh, because it's a book about technology permeating and body horror, reading it on a Kindle is not bad. And since it's about a, a third of the length of a regular book, you can read it on your Kindle app on your phone or computer. It will not kill your eyes. So even if you don't have a Kindle, I would suggest check it out because the chapters are real short. Right. And real uh, gross and disturbing and horrifying and, and sad and awful and funny. A real talk, listeners. If it does kill your eyes, that's very much on theme with today's episode. So yes. just kind of deal with it. Yes. Um, if uh, my book makes you go to blind, makes you go blind, please uh, write to me in Braille or whatever. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> I don't think that's how that works. <laughs> they don't write in Braille. I guess they probably don't. Well, I mean, they do. But I, uh, I, uh, <laughs> oh my god. Um, just leave a five star review. Uh, <laughs> Jack, thank you so much for coming. Actually, before we go, uh, as I occasionally like to get, ask guests, do you have any uh, words of wisdom for people out there in the dark? Do I have any uh, people in, in f- looking for horror advice? Just like walking that creative line. Like, what, what do you recommend people do? Here's what I'll, I'll recommend is uh, I wanted to write a book, and then I wrote one, and I sent it out to a bunch of publishers, and I got some positive feedback followed by a no thank you and I got some negative feedback followed by a very very hard no thank you and I said fuck it I wrote this book and people are going to read it and so I put it on Amazon it's self published it is available for 2.99 uh I say all that because if you want to do something you can and we talk a lot about filmmakers talk a lot about like oh well now there's YouTube and Back in the day, you couldn't do anything, but now there's YouTube. You can you can make whatever right. you want. The same thing is available on Amazon for writing. If you right. have this idea for a story, a short story, a collection of short stories, a novella or a novel, you can put it out there and people will read it, especially right. if you make it for free. I have free days when I make my, my, my novel for free, and uh, those are always... People uh, from all over the world. I have I've had people in like, uh, like, uh, what is it? Lusitania. That's a that's the that's, name of a ship. That's a boat that's uh, Latvia. Latvia. My yeah. book because it's free. Right. And they're like, I want a free book from America. But then anyway, maybe they discover their new favorite. Exactly. That, you know, exactly. So uh, I want people. Uh, to treat the Amazon publishing service just like we treat YouTube. Film a silly thing, put it on YouTube, write a silly story, put it on Amazon. It doesn't all have to be Chuck Tingle. Uh, Who I, by the way, met at Comic-Con. I, no, nothing against Chuck <laughs> no. Tingle, but he does, not, he does not own the market no. on fucking your TV remote if it became a person. Okay. For those of you who don't know Chuck Tingle, that would very much be the plot of one of his his books. Yes, you, you uh, could yeah, check yeah. out Chuck Tingle before you do. Stop by Ari the Was. Yeah. Uh, get you could get that one to read and enjoy. You could get Chuck Tingle to masturbate to. What a perfect exit, <laughs> Jack! Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me, Michael. It is a pleasure to be here and to see you again. It's so good to see you too. Ah, this has been Dead for Filth. I'm Michael Verratti. Yours always in glam and gore. Good night. And good luck.